Welcome to Classical Ideas. This is Greg Soden. The ways religions and cultures are represented in our lives profoundly impact our ability to understand practices from around the world for years to come. Think about some of your favorite action or comedy movies from when you were younger and consider the ethnicity, nationality, or religion of who is portrayed as the villain or the outsider. For me, a distinct memory I personally have is from the Major League films starring Charlie Sheen, Corbin Burnson, and Tom Berenger. A character in the Major League 1 and 2 series is portrayed by Dennis Haysbert, who is now known for his recurring roles in Allstate commercials and also as Senator Palmer in 24 with Kiefer Sutherland. But Haysbert also appeared as the voodoo-practicing Cuban refugee slugger Pedro Serrano in Major League One and Major League Two. In the film, Pedro makes offerings of rum, cigars, and more to Joe Boo, while other players on the team leer over Pedro's shoulder. In one notable scene, I remember Pedro and another player arguing over whether or not accepting Jesus Christ as Pedro's personal Lord and Savior can help with Pedro's ability to hit curveballs. I'm not being hyperbolic when I say the depiction of Pedro Serrano was my mental image of voodoo for my entire teenage years and likely all of my 20s as well. So how film presents ideas sticks with us. It sticks with me for sure. I haven't seen Major League 1 or 2 since I was probably like 15 or 16, but I can remember it as if it was yesterday. That's how much film representation sticks with us. So I've wanted to discuss film a lot on the show recently, but film is sort of an accidental topic of discovery for this episode because I found my guest for the episode, Emily Cruz, to come on the show to discuss African religions and voodoo. Her personal interest in film, which she teaches about at the University of Alabama in a course called Religion Goes to the Movies, coincided and overlapped to create a fantastic discussion about Vodun, voodoo, African diaspora and religion, as well as popular culture depictions of voodoo in popular films. So Emily Cruz is a Ph.D. candidate in history of religions at the University of Chicago Divinity School and teaches at the University of Alabama currently. Her dissertation project traces the relationship between movement and identity formation in the context of Nigerian immigration to the United States, exploring the ways in which Pentecostalism conditions and is conditioned by the attempts of people to make themselves feel at home in a foreign culture. The major piece we discuss in this episode is titled, Is Voodoo a Religion?, which is a chapter from the book Religion in Five Minutes, edited by Russell McCutcheon and Aaron Hughes. So we had a really good time in this conversation, and without further delay, I hope you enjoy my conversation on Vodun, Voodoo, and the movies with Emily Cruz. Emily Cruz, welcome to Classical Ideas. Thanks for having me. It is great to have you here. Can you start off by introducing yourself to the audience, however you see fit? Sure. Um, however I see fit. Well, I'm a PhD candidate in history of religions at the University of Chicago Divinity School, and I'm also a full-time teaching instructor at the University of Alabama in the Religious Studies Department. Um, I should say Roll Tide. Roll Tide. Um, <laughs> 
And um, I guess if I'm allowed to call myself a scholar, maybe I would say um, as a scholar, my interests are in big questions about like uh, how religion shapes who we are and who we think we're supposed to be, you know, how to personal and institutional group identities um, come out of or relate to religion. Um, and a lot of the work I'm doing right now is trying to answer those questions by thinking through um, religion in African diaspora communities in the U.S., specifically uh, Pentecostal Christianity, um, Nigerian Pentecostal Christianity in Chicago. Nice. I'm curious just real quick about the uh, how you're managing with that distance between Chicago and Alabama at the moment while you're finishing up your program while also teaching. Uh, how's that going? Um, that's a good question. Um, it's better on some days than on others. Um, certainly the kind of uh, strange pandemic situation we're in right now has made it more difficult. Um, but uh, it's a lot of work. Um, but for me, teaching really kind of fires my research brain and vice versa. So um, it's a lot of work, but it's exciting work to be doing. Nice. Okay. So I'm always curious about people's backstories a little bit. How did you come to care about the academic study of religion as like a career path? What was that process, that meandering process like to lead you to where you are today? Uh, it was definitely meandering. That's a good word for it. Um, you know, I grew up in the American South, in South Carolina. And I think from as early as I can remember, the way that people talked about themselves and who they were supposed to be and who they wanted to be and, um, you know, the kinds of things they could do and couldn't do, like, you know, dance or drink wine, who they could love, all these sorts of things were um, informed or shaped by recourse to religion, um, Christianity specifically for most people. And so, yeah, from as early as I can remember, religion was part of how people talked about themselves. And I think that really just stuck with me, um, you know, probably subconsciously for a long time. Um, so that, you know, by the time I was in high school, I had all these questions about like, why this or why that? that um, didn't feel fully answered by, you know, a sort of um, insider religious account of things. And so when I went to college, I was interested in a lot of stuff, but um, religious studies kept sort of calling me back. And um, Agnes Scott College, where I went to uh, do my undergrad, has a really great religious studies program and um, history program. And so a lot of the people I spent time talking to or took classes with really helped me think in this academic way about what on earth religion is and why it works the way it does. And then I did Peace Corps in Southern Africa, and a lot of the same questions I'd had from growing up and in college pertained and were relevant there also. And so I kind of just kept having this, I don't know, this persistent heartbeat of questions, you know, why this, why that, what about that? And uh, when I finished Peace Corps, uh, someone let me into the master's program <laughs> at the school at Chicago. And I was hooked from there. You know, I was just, I loved the kinds of critical, theoretically driven questions that were being asked in the history of religions subfield. And uh, yeah, I've been there in some capacity or another, maybe not physically uh, since then. Was the Peace Corps your sort of intro to being interested in African diaspora migration, et cetera, that finds its way into your work now? Um, it was not actually, although it was a, a particular stage of it. Um, I've actually been interested in Africa also since I was a kid. Um, you know, growing up as a white child in the South, I heard Africa talked about in these really different and in some ways kind of opposing um, ways. 
And, you know, for some people, Africa was just this, like this place of hope and inspiration, a homeland, um, you know, a kind of root of tradition. And for others, you know, namely uh, white people, it was used as a tool to dismiss um, people of color and a way to uh, kind of denigrate tradition that African-Americans especially were claiming. And so that really stuck with me as this, like, it can't be both. There's got to be something wrong here. Um, Or could it be both and why? Um, And when I got to college, I had, you know, again, these amazing professors, Tina Pippin and Mary Kane and Violet Johnson, um, historians and scholars of religion who helped me really think about uh, how discourse was used, why people might, um, you know, want to construct this sort of ideological image of Africa as negative and backward, et cetera, and why they'd want to kind of take that away from people, what kind of ideological ends that would serve. And I think that theoretical thinking, um, I was just so lucky to have these professors who helped me systematically figure out what's the motivation here? Why do people do it? What's wrong with it? Um, how do you work against it? And how does that, you know, can you do that in a principled way in your scholarship? Um, and then, you know, I was taking classes about like the Old Testament, um, as it was called at Agnes Scott, you know, the Hebrew Bible, um, antebellum America, uh, colonial and post-colonial West Africa. And so all that stuff actually really merged and brought me into this way of thinking about what does religion have to do or can it have to do with the way that we think about designations like African or African Christianity or whatever. And then Peace Corps, I was in Southern Africa, which is actually in many ways very different from West Africa um, and in others, not so much. Um, and so it was this other new way of thinking about Africa and living and, and being um, and so for me, you know, my interest in Africa and in the diaspora isn't doesn't come from a personal one um, in the sense of like, I don't know what it means to claim that identity or to have an experience that is African or African-American or part of a diaspora in that sense. Um, but I think I just really came to see this like, dignity and beauty in the way that people thought about um, Africa and, and Peace Corps really, I think, just hammered that home. Awesome. Well, we're going to talk a little bit um, about teaching and a little bit of writing today. And so you and I connected on Twitter, I guess it was several months ago, and we've been trying to make this, uh, get our schedules to align now for a while to get you on the show. Um, But something that I was, that I found whenever I was looking into some of your work the other day is that you teach a class, which sounds so cool. And I'm a high school teacher, so I get super geeky about people's, um, course selections, like what they teach, what materials they use, and how they tie in different cultural attributes. Um, And you have a class called Religion Goes to the Movies, which I feel does all of that because it (laughs) sounds like you have a fantastic array of engaging pop culture, uh, stereotype busting exercises and class discussions, and like a complete, almost like a reframing for the way that young people might come to see religions different than the ones they personally have practiced. So, I would love to know a little bit about how you set up and organize this class, like how you, what the order of the class is, and just, you know, about the, the organization in general. Yeah, um, man, I hope that's true of my teaching. I love mm. the idea of being a stereotype uh, busting teacher. I believe it probably is. You're pro- it probably <laughs> does. Let's hope so. Uh, so this class is really interesting uh, for a variety of reasons. It was created uh, and put, you know, on the books and on the schedule well before I ever got to UA. Um, you know, the department here is really creative and forward thinking. Um, and it's part of what drew me to it about um, how to engage students and how to 
sort of take some of this theoretical stuff we're doing in our scholarship and, and translate it into classes. So this one is a bit interesting because it's actually only a one credit hour class. So it's not like your standard, you know, seminar or lecture class or whatever. Um, and so the idea is less necessarily that you choose um, movies that are explicitly like about religion, you know, um, and we can think of probably hundreds of those. And rather that what we're doing in the class is trying to show students who probably um, have never taken a religious studies class. I mean, that's true of the vast majority of the students and who may never take another one, especially if they <laughs> don't like this one, um, you know, trying to show them how we can use the um, sort of methods and skills we gain from studying religion to think about things that aren't necessarily explicitly about religion, um, which I think is really like under the core of all my teaching, um, which is trying to teach students, you don't necessarily have to be thinking about religion and, you know, problematizing what that even means, right? Um, but you don't have to be thinking about religion per se, however you define it, to be using skills that religious studies can teach you. You can use those skills to think about anything, mm. Um, and so the class is taking movies that um, I wanted to watch or that I thought were illustrative of a concept or whatever and trying to do that. So every semester, um, I've only been, this is only my fourth semester, so my second year, but for the four semesters, I've chosen some kind of theme that I thought was interesting or as the class has grown and more and more students have taken it, I've started just pulling the students, look, here are three themes. What do you think? Um, send me an email if you have a strong feeling about something. Um, trying to, in a way, start off from the very beginning before we even get into class saying, like, this class belongs to you as much as it belongs to me, weigh in. Um, and then we pick a theme and then I pick a series of movies and let them weigh in on those. Um, so the first semester, the theme was coming of age. And we watched um, The Hunger Games, Dope, Lady Bird, and Call Me By Your Name. And then we've watched, you know, other things since then. So what the other themes have been um, The End of the World as We Know It, which, you know, seems kind of prescient now. Oh, uh, yes. And a number of my students, that was last semester, a number of my students have emailed and been like, oh, this class really helped me prepare. <laughs> <laughs> so funny and really depressing. Um, this semester we did other beings, other worlds. So trying to think about like, what does it mean to posit the existence of beings other than humans? What's the ideological work done by an assumption of that kind? Um, and so we watched uh, The Witch, which, you know, freaked out everyone and was awesome to talk about. We were all like, oh, when we went home um, and uh, Arrival and, you know, we got interrupted so we didn't get to watch the rest of the movies together. But um, yeah, it has been one of the most fun things I've ever taught. The students get so excited. And, you know, I think they're in a way really sophisticated when it comes to talking about movies because they've been watching them and thinking about them their whole lives. But in another way, they aren't really taught to, you know, criticize and look for underlying themes or see where characters are symbols and that kind of thing. That's stuff they do in like an English class or, you know, whatever. Um, so teaching them how you can look at a story like The Witch and see stuff like, hmm, you know, fear of nature, the distinction between uh, nature and humanity, um, you know, a distinction between masculine and feminine, fear of the feminine, the feminine is wild or whatever. Um and seeing them, I mean, like literally seeing their faces, but also looking at what they write and seeing this transition where they're like, cool, movies are fun. And then like, my brain is broken because, you know, um, and they are so good at it. They're so good. Um, so, yeah, it's super fun. And I feel really lucky that UA, uh, that the Religious Studies Department gave me this course because I feel in a way like it has been some of the most instructive teaching for me because I'm dealing with so many different students from different backgrounds 
um, and trying to convince them like, no, this movie really might be about 9-11, guys, really. <laughs> well, and I also think that it, something that if I'm thinking about myself as a learner, a class like that would help me to see cultural illusions yeah. that, that people in society make all around me that are tied or inspired by religion in some way. But if I don't know the cultural touchstones, I can't make those connections. So I kind of feel like you bringing those themes to the front will help students see those when they come out in their life after your class. Yeah, for sure. That's the hope, right? That they are able to see like, look, this story, you know, about a guy who's all by himself walking through the desert, like, there are lots of, you know, other stories like that, that this might be drawing on, or, you know, you able to see sort of mythological illusions or like, people, this story was stolen from Homer, you know, or not stolen, mm. like borrowed from or inspired by or whatever, right? Um, yeah, so it's really fun to see them figuring out that stuff, and also to see them bringing their own things to it. So things that I would never have occurred that would never have occurred to me, because they're 18 or 20. And they're steeped in this kind of knowledge or culture that like, it's just not mine anymore, because, you know, I'm old. Um, and so it's really, like, has changed also the way that I look at things and read things. Um, yeah, it's it's so much fun. It's well, really and fun. it helps you reframe from a younger perspective. And so that way you can have your experience of being, you know, older, like, however old you are. Um, <laughs> but then also thinking about it from the perspective of somebody who might be like, you know, sometimes 10, 15, 20 years younger than you, you know, so it sure. keeps you thinking about things in a diverse way so that you can see multiple perspectives. That's why I think the teaching is such a powerful profession in general. Yeah, I mean, it really has, you know, as much as people joke, like, oh, they keep me young. Um, I think I've resisted saying that in part, just because it's such a, you know, common thing to say. Sure. But in a way, there is something about, um, if nothing else, exposure to ways of thinking and data for thinking that I don't have the same kind of fluency in. And so having them teach me about like, I mean, the number of things I feel like my classes, if nothing else, I mean, I make so many notes, because They've taught me about iCarly and Phineas and Ferb and, you know, all these things. Uh, TikTok. Um, I've learned to call them TikToks, not TikTok videos, because they <laughs> mocked me aggressively, as they should. Uh, so things like that, I think, as much as often professors want to dismiss that sort of thing, it's like, oh, that's just pop culture. Actually, it's, you know, this incredibly compelling data for how we think and how we talk. Um, and it's been really useful to me. They've They've changed the way I think, no doubt. I love it. Well, we're going to come back to films in a little bit through a couple of examples that I've pulled out from some of your work. But I read a piece of yours recently called, Is Voodoo a Religion? So I want to go back to your African diaspora interests, and then we're going to come back and tie in the pop culture here in a little bit. But right. um, I have many questions about this piece, um, okay. but I want to begin with terminology and about the two voodoos that you describe in the piece. One is a depiction of colonialist attempts to foster a sense of superiority of one group against another. And the other voodoo, an actual belief system and practices that emerge out of the interaction of African, Native American, and European religions in the Caribbean and the United States. So as complicated a question as this might be, I'm wondering if you can distinguish between the two voodoos in a bit of detail for me so the terminology is crystal clear and that these are distinguished for the listener. So let's start with voodoo, the phenomenon invented out of a racist fantasy about African people. Can you describe what that is a bit? 
Sure. Um, so yes, religious studies, you know, scholars, we love things to be as clear about as clear as mud. <laughs> so I will do my best. Um, let me first start by saying though, that I am not a specialist on, uh, this topic. Um, there are so many scholars who can talk about this better and more elegantly than I can. They've already done it. Um, but I'll tell you my take on it. Um, and we can kind of go from there. So the way I framed the article was trying to think about, um, why it is, um, so let me actually just say the article is in a book called Religion in Five Minutes, uh, edited by Aaron Hughes and Russell McCutcheon, which is geared toward um, an undergraduate audience. So the idea is um, the articles we wrote were, um, we sort of framed on a question, so mine is voodoo a religion, that were supposed to help undergrads kind of think critically about stuff, um, religious studies related. So in part, I asked the question because all the time I feel like my students and other people I've heard, you know, like my whole life, well, voodoo is not a religion, right? You know, this V-O-O-D-O-O isn't a religion. And so I wanted to say, why do people say that? What do they mean by religion, et cetera? So when I proposed this term, V-O-O-D-O-O, what I was, um, you know, started by talking about, as you said, this kind of racist fantasy, is that often when the term is used, um, what it means is something like, you know, backward, evil, magic related stuff that we would never, right, when we use it called, use the word religion, to be clear, that's not me talking, but other people talking. Um, and uh, the term, I think, often is sort of tied into this exoticization, sexualization, um, sensationalist perspective of African diaspora religions, you know, not just in Haiti, where, um, Vodun, which we'll talk about in a minute, actually, you know, comes from, um, but also just sort of in the U.S. and New Orleans, et cetera. So I think there's this way of linking the notion of blackness or black religion um, with a capital B um, African diaspora religions with, um, you know, the suspicious, the mysterious, the dangerous, um, the compelling, but in a way that, you know, you might get burned. Um, and so in the article, I was trying to make this argument that often when we talk about voodoo in a colloquial sense in the United States, that's what people are looking at. And that the origins of that are from, um, you know, a white Western European and American colonial perspective of, in this case, Haiti and the Caribbean that says, um, you know, these people who are different from us racially, we're going to, um, you know, sort of have this use this religion or use these set of practices or ideas as a way of um, distinguishing ourselves from them, our rational, um, compelling, you know, non-magic believing selves um, from this kind of um, fantastical world. Okay. So then we have, as you mentioned a minute ago, the term Vodun. What is this? V-O-D-U-N. What is that? Yeah, so it's, and it's spelled in other ways too. So I, I should say that, I can't remember now if I said that in the article or not. Um, I think I did. So there's, you know, all there are all kinds of ways of spelling it. Um, but yes, V-O-D-O-N or U-N or V-O-D-O-U-N. Um, this, uh, okay, I'm trying to think about how, how to do this as systematically as possible. Um, there's V-O-O-D-O-O, this thing that gets sensationalized or exoticized that comes out of the Caribbean, especially um, Haiti. And it is that sensationalized thing is based on some things that actually exist in Haiti called Haitian Vodun. Um, and that Haitian Vodun 
is um, comes out of a really fascinating um, interaction between a variety of traditions. Um, so first, and probably the main one where the term comes from, is um, Vodun, which comes from uh, West Africa. So it came at the time um, in the 18th and 19th centuries from what is now um, Benin and uh, Nigeria and Togo. And those religious traditions, those practices that were brought um, primarily through slavery um, to the Caribbean and uh, Latin America intermixed in this really vibrant, fascinating way with Native American religions, with Christianity, especially Catholicism, to produce something that is understood to be Haitian Vodun. Um, and that uh, tradition uses um, all these different inspirations to uh, create a kind of rich life world that was hugely important to um, slaves and freed Haitians and you know other people at the time, um, and was also a huge part of the 1791 uh, rebellion that led to um, uh, a freed Haiti. So you mentioned 1791 just now. What time period uh, are we talking about here for the development of what becomes known as Haitian Vodun? Um, well, you know, like anything else, it has a kind of a long history, but I would say that we're talking primarily about, um, the 17th and 18th centuries, the 18th century, probably mostly, but you have all these different ways where different moments, things are connecting. So, you know, slavery, um, and the kind of large scale movement of people to the Caribbean, um, you know, it has its early history, of course, in like the late 15th century, but really we're talking primarily for this development of Haitian Vodun, um, yeah, mostly from like the 18th century and some in the 17th. Okay, so in the article you also mentioned that um, this Vodun is polytheistic. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Because, you know, I think that understanding the ways that we think about God or gods in any religion is also very fascinating. Yeah. Um, and this is where, you know, the irritating answer that drives my students crazy, but they, <laughs> they come to embrace by the end of the class. Uh, it makes me so proud is, um, so is, um, Vodun or voodoo, depending on how we talk about it. Um, is it polytheistic? Well, it depends. So what does polytheistic normally mean? Um, it typically means, you know, belief in or veneration of or practices related to multiple gods, multiple spirits, you know, something of that sort. Um, so automatically, we start in a way with this contrast to monotheism, which usually then gets us thinking about Christianity, right? Or the big three monotheistic religions, Christianity, Islam, Judaism, etc. Um, and I think we kind of already want to take a step away from that because we, even though obviously human brains are comparative, that's how we do everything. Um, polytheism often ends up looking um, problematic or less good or less real or, you know, whatever um, in comparison to monotheism. So really, um, and actually I think if you Google and you, you see something like is voodoo, polytheistic. A lot of people make this argument, well, it's not really polytheistic, because um, there is belief in one major God. Um, and depending on how we make these definitions, that's true, um, or could be true, or could be, you know, accurate, however you want to say it. Uh, there is this sort of distanced creator being um, with whom um, practitioners have very little to no actual interaction. But then there are all these um, depending on how you frame it, right? Gods, spirits, et cetera, uh, called Lua, who are um, really the ones who are actively engaged with human life, um, who interfere, who help, 
who bless, who complicate, who possess. Um, and so in that respect, depending on who you ask, maybe you would say it's monotheistic with some spirits. Maybe you would say it's polytheistic. Um, yeah, I would say I would leave that up to the individual scholar, but I tend to lean toward polytheistic because I think monotheistic gives a sense of like just the one dude up there telling people what to do. <laughs> nice. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about practices as well. Um, mm -hmm. So when we think about Vodun um, and we think about any religion, people do certain things within religion. However, they ex tend to express themselves within a certain tradition. Um it's interesting to observe, to think about, to talk about. So you mentioned that Vodun is a very communal religion um, and also very performative. And I'm curious what uh, each of these look like and what people are doing and um, expressing in these communal and performative ways. Yeah. So um, one of the things that I also, now we're back to the notion of comparison, um, I feel like this is what religious studies scholars do, or probably all scholars do, right? Anytime we try to make one firm statement, you're like, well, actually, here are all these ways, you know, the proliferation of our minds. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yeah, practices are hugely important. And when I wrote this in the article, one of the points I was trying to make is that um, when you ask the question, is voodoo a religion? Or then we expand, is voodoo a religion? Is voodoo a religion, et cetera? Um, almost always the people asking this question or in the way I frame the article is being asked from a kind of American, typically white Protestant perspective, um, is Voodoo a religion? What they mean is, does it look like my thing mm -hmm. or does it look like something I know when I say religion? And so often what people mean when they say that is something like it's private, it's personal, it's internal. And you contrast that um, with all kinds of things we may or may not call religions um, that aren't necessarily private. They're not necessarily communal or um, personal. Rather, they're public and they're communal. They're not necessarily about what you believe, but more about what you do or the hierarchy between belief and practice might look different. And so for this one, um, for voodoo or voodoon, um, there is a lot of activity, physical activity, singing, dancing, um, sacrificing, praying, etc., um, making offerings that might look very different and very strange from a perspective if religion to you is something that's internal, that's really just about what you yourself alone believe in connection to some one single higher power. Um, so there are all kinds of practices. Um, and again, depending on your perspective, that you might say something like, are beautiful and are exciting and are fascinating or dangerous or scary. Um, and I think I've probably done enough work at this point to hit on why dangerous and scary are problematic and beautiful too, right? Um, they're, they're all kind of predicated upon an assumption of difference. But um, yeah, so this sort of the emphasis on practices was in part to say like, look, this is something different from how we might use the term religion, um, but that people get together and dance and sing and sacrifice, et cetera. Um, and that's meaningful and important to them. When you say sing, what are they, what are they singing about? Um, all kinds of things. I think it depends on um, what they're doing at the time. So sometimes songs are about inviting spirits to come out um, or gods. Again, um, most people use the language spirits, use the term spirits, inviting the Lua to come um, be with them, be amongst them, um, be inside them or possess them. The term possess too has a kind of negative connotation, but yeah. 
are there any like authentic recordings of uh, some of these songs? Um, yeah, sure. So there are all kinds of recordings like that people make right now, like might be making in this very moment on their cell phones of mm-hmm. themselves, um, you know, as part of um, a celebration or some kind of interaction. Um, there are all kinds of yeah, recordings and documentations. There are documentaries um, from the 1950s. There's a documentary um, uh, by this French, um, I think she's a sociologist, Maya Darren, um, who is, you know, kind of making this first real like Western glimpse into like documentary glimpse into um, Haitian Fadoon. Um, but yeah, I mean, you can Google and you will see people recording. Actually, I think there's a, um, I think Reza Aslan might have done a piece on uh, quote voodoo um, in Haiti for CNN. Oh, it's it, got was it in the Believer series? Probably, yeah. Which alone is, I will just say, um, undiplomatically, a very irritating title. <laughs> because why do we hit on? Why does it have to be about belief, right? Well, it's about why we define religion the way we do. Interesting. Um, yes, I think it might have been part of that. And you know, there are scenes there of you know, CNN's cameras capturing people doing stuff. Now, whether or not we would call that authentic, um, we have to problematize what authentic means and blah, 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 right? We won't do that now. (laughs) But certainly there are recordings, yeah. Excellent. Okay, so whenever we think about singing, uh, dancing, sacrificing, things like that, the, the term that springs to mind also appears in your pieces, ecstatic. And I'm curious, what does the term ecstatic mean within Vodun? And then I'm also curious about how American religious traditions are inspired by the ecstatic um, expression found within Vodun. Yeah, okay. So I'm not sure um, how much there would be a direct inspiration from, you know, uh, Haiti to the U.S. Um, Well, uh, it broadly to the U.S. Right? Yeah. Um, so yeah. there, there. We didn't talk about this, but you know, there's this continuation of like West Africa to the Caribbean to the United States, um, especially to the Southern United States, with this tradition um, that you know goes vodun, vodun, voodoo, maybe hoodoo, whatever. Right? All these different ways of talking about it. Um, so I don't know how necessarily how much the ecstatic in a literal way might translate, but there's no doubt that ecstasy is part of all kinds of of uh, traditions we might call religions. Um, And I think in this sense, it means something sort of like, um, there are all kinds of ways to talk about it, maybe. Maybe it's just about like this feeling of, you know, joy or energy or something of that sort. Um, And you may go as far as something like a break with yourself or distance from your own self or engagement with a new self that only appears at this time. Um, Something like a radical kind of pleasure or disjuncture. Mm. So in this, um, in this sense with uh, Vodun, I think it's often really about inviting um, engagement with the spirits and that ecstasy comes in part from um, the presence and engagement with the law and especially probably with possession um, or with, um, you know, having the law enter you, ride you is the term that's often used, um, you know, but be part of your physical, um, mental, epistemological self. Um, and so that's a very different kind of way of being. What's the term you keep saying? Is it law? Yes. Sorry. I could have explained that earlier. Yeah. L-O- what is that? 
Um, yeah, so L-O-A or L-W-A, depending on how you spell it, it comes out of um, a fawn word from Benin that means spirits. Mm. Um, and so that's the term. Um, sometimes in English, people often say spirits, but they might say Lua or Lua. It depends on how you say it. Lua, Lua. Um, I'm pretty sure Reza Aslan says like Lua. <laughs> okay, so uh, I'm curious about uh, symbolism a little bit as well. What symbols are found within Vodun and what should we look for if we're, you know, observing it? Um, yeah, there are all kinds of symbols, like agricultural symbols, um, symbols of like, you know, bodies, um, climatological things, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, in the same way that like probably most anything has, you know, there are images that are important. Um, so the way, um, you know, you might see things represented is also a way of cueing like relationships to certain um, spirits or, you know, things like that. Okay. So whenever we think about the deities or God or gods in the world, a lot of times, oftentimes people think about God as something that is uh, morally perfect or something like that. Um, and in the piece, you write that deities in Vodun are understood to be morally ambiguous which mm -hmm. might be a contrast for some people whenever they're thinking about how they view religion. Um, so who are some Vodun deities and how are they understood to be morally ambiguous? Um, this is very fun to talk about, I think. Mm -hmm. I think there's a way in which many um, traditions that uh, come out of Africa and the African diaspora have this rich conception of what it means to be a person and also what it means to be a spirit or a God or a deity, again, depending on, on the terms people might use. Uh, and it isn't this kind of all seeing all perfect, you know, removed being necessarily, but instead you get um, spirits who are hungry and who are desirous and who, you know, want to eat chocolate and want to dance and want to live as human beings or want to have nice coats or, um, you know, want to make you fall in love with someone or help you fall in love with someone. And so you get in a way these very human impulses that I think um, for a lot of people are um, like really resonate um, and help them kind of see themselves. And, um, you know, they're all, it's all kind of scholarship about, um, you know, practice throughout Africa and throughout, you know, the Caribbean and Latin America and the U.S. where we see this kind of, um, fragility and beauty and desire in the spirits that um that humans also have um so there there are a number of different kinds of deities um or different deities and they have you know depending on <clears throat> what kind of vodun we're talking about so is this haiti or jamaica or the dominican republic or the u.s you know things might differ and the terminology differs a little bit but um i'm trying to think of ones that might be the most recognizable to people uh Papa Legba might be one mm. he is um, sort of associated with uh, crossroads and the sense of sort of um, intermediacy or being inter intermediary maybe between uh, the human world and the spirit world. Um, Try to think of what else, who else you might talk about. He often appears as um, an older man. Um, he often wears a kind of hat and a lot of depictions of him. He has a hat. And so back to the symbols, you might see a straw hat hanging somewhere. Um, his hat is usually made of straw. And so you might see that hat hanging somewhere or a drawing of that hat, um, that often is cueing like, oh, I have a personal relationship with Papa Legba or he's the, you know, the wall with whom I most resonate or something like that. Um, he walks with a cane. 
well, often dog. And also, like with Papa Legba, I believe that Lance Reddick uh, depicted him in American Horror Story, right? Really? I don't know, actually. I've only seen like the early American Horror Stories, and I, I got a little creeped out. So, <laughs> I think there's a season with um, Lance Reddick who played... Um, who was in the wire. He was like the, the sergeant yeah. in the wire. Um, yeah. but I believe that there's a season of American horror story where Lance Reddick depicts Papa Legba. So you might want to check that out as far as like your film interests go. Yeah. Look how, see how useful this has been already. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. So, um, the title of the article is voodoo, a religion. Like, yeah. so to me, whenever I'm, when I'm hearing you describe Vodun. It feels like it fits all the criteria of being classified as a religion. There's beliefs, there's practices, there's deities, there's things people do. In fact, you describe these practices as rational forms of engagement with the spirit realm for practitioners. So I'm curious if you've seen any of these practices in person or interviewed people describing their experiences to you and what those conversations may have been like. Um, well, I've never seen, um, Haitian voodoo in, in particular in practice. Um, I have talked with some practitioners very informally, so I've never formally interviewed them because my diaspora, my work on the African diaspora is really about contemporary, um, you know, Pentecostal Christianity, um, in the U S um, my formal interviews are really focused on that stuff. Um, I've attended some, um, services that, um, you know, come out or basically like practices that of people from Benin and Nigeria in the U S um, that are, you know, sort of part of this antecedent um, religious culture. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would say it's interesting because there are all kinds of ways, even though, you know, I haven't seen um, this stuff in person and, you know, maybe never will um, for lots of good reasons, probably. Um I do think that there's an interesting way of thinking about like, I mean, classify is what you said. And I think that's exactly the thing that I'm interested in ultimately in my work. Um, can this be classified as a religion or not? Why or why not? And um, ultimately, what does it mean to do so? And so, yeah, there are all kinds of ways that we might define this as a religion. And I certainly would. Um, and that's what the article argues. Like, I would classify it as a religion, but everyone else gets to make that decision for themselves. And on what criteria are they making that classification and, you know, to what ideological ends? Um, so even though I haven't seen, um, you know, this particular stuff I'm talking about um, in the article in person, I would still say, um, yeah, I would classify it as a religion. Excellent. Well, in the piece, you also refer to quite a few films. So I want to go back to Hollywood for a second. So you talk about Angel Heart. The Princess and the Frog, Skeleton yeah. Key, Major League, Bayou. So as a scholar interested in the depictions of African diasporic depictions in major films and pop culture, can you tell me a little bit about your process for finding film depictions <laughs> and tell me about your research process in finding what we see on our on our TV screens and movie screens over the years? Sure. Um, well, the good thing about... Um, this, you know, kind of question is that a lot of people have done research already. And so I'm not starting from scratch, you know, there's no way in which I'm like, trying to figure out, um, you know, what, you know, having to watch 100 movies, right? So part of it is from not that that would be bad, because it sounds great. Um, part of it, of course, is just from, you know, looking at what other people have written, and then following up on their points. So um, I cited this article in the is voodoo religion article, um, Joseph Murphy writes a, an article called Black Religion and Black Magic, 
prejudice and protection and images of African derived religions. Um, and he mentions a number of these um, movies also, and a lot more that I didn't talk about. Um, so in part, it's about, you know, reading closely this really brilliant work that other people have done and saying, oh, yeah, let me follow that and check it out. Um, and then also it's in part just watching movies myself or seeing things and picking up on them or having other scholars talk to me about them or friends saying, hey, I think you might, you know, just like you did, you should look at, a, you know, American Horror Story mm-hmm. and being like, great. Um, this, I think, is kind of the remarkable thing about academia. It gets a lot of, um, you know, academia gets a lot of trash talked about it for good and bad reasons. But I do think the kind of network we have where people might know what you're interested in or the questions you're asking and so much stuff, you know, gets sent to you. So, um, yeah, I mean, I found out about them from suggestions from people, from other people's work, uh, and just sometimes like by accident or from that tingling sensation you get. <laughs> so <laughs> very strange. Um, but as a scholar, when you know something is going to be, even you see a three second trailer and you're like, hold it, hold on a second. I need to follow that up because it's something's going to come up that's going to be important. Nice. Well, and I'm curious, like, how scholars go about fact checking when they find a film that has a depiction of voodoo or voodoo of some kind. Mm-hmm. How are what is the process like for determining the accuracy of the depiction? Um, you know, I will say that might be something uh, the the in depth answer to this question would probably be something better given to someone else. Um, in part because I'm not um, a specialist. But what I would say, what I do, and what what really interests me kind of generally in the study of religion is trying to figure out, rather than trying to judge necessarily accuracy, like is this faithful to some insider depiction? Is this faithful to some historical depiction? Whatever. Um, And really trying to figure out what is the ideological goal in the depiction? What's the gaze we're getting? And what's trying to be done here? And I would say any depiction, like many listed, you know, in the article, that is trying to make an ideological point about difference and strangeness and danger, um, itself is problematic. Mm. And so um, whether or not it's accurate, I would probably say I would take a step back from because I'm not steeped in the deep, you know, historical um, facts about Vodun. But certainly, the, you know, skeleton key, angel heart, angel heart, maybe the most amongst them. Um, but those, you know, movies really are about creating this sense of like fear and exotica and, um, you know, magic, etc. And I mean, Angel Heart's the perfect example. If you think about, you know, it's this, you know, completely convoluted and ridiculous story. But you have um, this, you know, white man who is literally peering through, uh, you know, some bushes at this young, beautiful woman he has developed an interest in, in watching her do these practices. Um, and it's bloody and it's sexy and it's dirty in a way like literal dirt sand. Um, and I think that scholars alone, we're keyed to that kind of thing, right? We know that that's doing a lot more, whether it knows it or not, than just showing us some image. Well, one of the examples that really jumped out as me as at me as well is the movie major league with Charlie Sheen. So I was like obsessed with that movie when I was in middle school and high school. And one of the things that jumps out at me when I was reading your article was uh, the depictions of Pedro Serrano, the the home run hitter, allegedly, on the team. Uh, and in the locker room, how all these like middle-aged, out-of-shape, failed major leaguers are like 
like peering over at what Pedro is up to, like and yeah. like side eyeing Pedro <laughs> big time. So he's sitting in at his locker, um, involving his curse doll, Joe Boo, and who has a penchant for cigars. Um, yeah. What do you know about Pedro in Major League, and how does he? How does this depiction sort of like fit in with um, like this exoticism or with this othering that you're that you're kind of referring to? Yeah, so I haven't seen that movie in a while, so um, I'm thinking back to it now. But my memory is that in part it is about your. I mean, your your depiction is a really nice one. Like you've got these kind of tired, you know, white dudes with their hurt knees who are like, <laughs> oh, like no, one more season, um, and then you know you have yeah this like home run hitter. And there's this notion that like something he's getting his power from somewhere else, right? Like his power doesn't just come from him. It doesn't come from himself, his own, you know, athletic prowess or whatever. And I think it's done in a very funny way. Um, But there is this sense that like this guy's got something else. And like, maybe we don't necessarily want that thing because maybe it's dangerous, even though it's funny. Right. Um, But uh, you know, there is this way in which like, there's power coming from something and somewhere else that maybe it's illicit power and um, maybe it's humorous illicit power. Uh, but my memory is that, yeah, like as much as it's kind of creating a caricature of, um, you know, a spirit that wants something, or in this case, like it, just it being called a curse doll. Mm. It's like, well, the voodoo doll alone is, you know, this, um, you know, symbol that doesn't hold the same kind of significance or relevance, um, for most actual practitioners as it does for an assumption from, you know, an American perspective. So that alone, people will be like, yeah, no, not so much probably, but the cigars thing, there are the walls who love cigars. Awesome. (laughs) So, you know, I, I think that building bridges and understanding between uh, people who practice different religions is such a good thing in our world. Um, But I would imagine that the, that broader understanding of the history of Vodun or voodoo based on film depictions has not really increased our cultural literacy with regards to practices because the films probably depict these things as still odd and exotic. Um, is there any broad like understanding or misunderstanding about voodoo um, that you think that like our society struggles with based on the caricatures presented in films? Um, yes, I would say all of them. <laughs> um, you know, I think the idea here really is creating an image that's exotic. And it might be compelling in its exotic nature, but it's certainly not um, given the same kind of credence or legitimacy as, um, you know, someone praying in a Southern Baptist church or someone, you know, working a rosary. And so I think um, there are all kinds of ways in which these movies don't contribute to a richer understanding. Um, Instead, they really present a very similar picture to one another um, that is based, as you know, as we talked about a little bit earlier on this historical account that, again, comes from white missionaries or white colonialists looking at these practices and going, whoa, weird, you know, scary, bad, um, and, you know, attaching that to all kinds of narratives about slaves and about um, Africans and about African-Americans. And so, yeah, I think the movies have not helped at all. And certainly when I talk about um, these things in my classes, um, my students have a very similar, you know, like three point perspective, which is voodoo dolls. One time I went to new Orleans 
um, ooh, magic, you know, and that's not because they aren't thinking critical people. It's because they've been given this sense repeatedly. Um, and there's really no reason for them to question it until they're invited to in a, you know, in at some moment. So this isn't, you, you've mentioned a few times that voodoo and vodun isn't necessarily your specialty, but I'm also curious about your agenda for research within the field, because you're obviously deeply interested in this. Um, but what are you? What are your research plans? What are you, what is your agenda um, as far as like the next several years of scholarship goes? Well, first on my agenda is to finish my interminable dissertation. Mm. Um, so as soon as possible, um, finishing it, and then I have a number of things I'm working on right now. Um, Russell McCutcheon, uh, the chair of the department where I work, and I are uh, publishing a book um, about things people have written about J.C. Smith in or wrote about, about him in the year um, since he died. So between uh, sort of December 2017 and December 2018. Uh, so we've collected together a bunch of writings about that. Um, and uh, most of my work is really focused on the idea of like, gendered religious personhood, especially uh, religious womanhood. And so in my dissertation and in some articles I'm working on now, a lot of the questions I'm trying to think through are things like how do we arrive at conclusions or how do various groups arrive at conclusions about what it means to be um, a good Christian woman or, um, you know, a good Christian mother or things of that sort. Um, and so those questions I'm trying to answer right now are with um, Nigerian Pentecostals in the U.S., but I'm also interested in that question in kind of um, American evangelical circles. Um, what else am I doing? I'm working on a website about teaching, a kind of web resource about teaching for the department here. I'm asking people to share examples that they've used in their teaching that have been productive in part. So we don't have to keep reinventing the wheel. Mm. So you can go and look and say, ah, oh, all right. Um, I'm teaching about classification today, or I'm teaching about pilgrimage. What are some examples or exercises I can do instead of having to spend, you know, three hours trying to think through this stuff? Um, and I have been working on an article for um, a book that Emily Clark um, and Rachel McBride are editing about digital humanities and material religion. So there's so much awesome stuff going on. I'm Absolutely. actually trying to no to things. <laughs> yeah. Um, those are the, yeah, those are some of the big things I've been working on. Well, I appreciate you not saying no to me because this <laughs> is awesome. Um, where can people find you if they want to follow you and see what you put out next? Well, I am intermittently active on Twitter. So um, I actually probably don't link my stuff to my work very often. And I'm not sure why. I think it's more about like, oh, is it awkward to say read this thing I wrote? Uh, I'm going to have to get over that. But I'm on Twitter um, and I chat with a lot of people there. Um, I have um, like a faculty page on the UA website where um, there I have some links to some of the stuff I've written. Um, I'm on academia.edu, although I'm one of those lame people who never post anything. So uh, this conversation alone has inspired me maybe to do a little better job of <laughs> Um, you know, putting things there, but those are probably the best places to reach me. And I would never say no to this podcast because I use it in my teaching. Uh, so yeah, so I was honored to be asked. Why did you use it in your teaching? I'm just curious. Um, well, I've really been trying to think, you know, going back to the idea of like being young, um, trying to think about how to 
really broaden the kinds of data and resources I use in my teaching. Um, and so most of what I use, um, you know, I use, I use some texts that are about religious studies proper, but then a lot of the examples I use don't come from religious studies per se. Instead, they come from like, I ask students to talk about love or to watch a movie or we play like board games or whatever, um, in an effort to make a connection between their lives and the material. Um, and so that also applies to, um, like types of methods or, you know, technology or whatever. And so a lot of them listen to podcasts and I thought this would be a really cool way to get them thinking about some questions, um, and get them introduced to certain scholars who might be using methods or talking about issues that we've talked about. Um, but that isn't just saying, here's an article, here's another article, here's a book. Um, and they, they have loved listening to them. They love podcasts. Um, even though at first they're like, they, you know, affectionately tend to make fun of me like, Ooh, you think you're being cool. (laughs) But normally they're, they're actually pretty happy to use them in the end. Besides this one, what are some other podcasts that you recommend to undergraduates? Uh, I have some of them I've given them to listen to, um, it just like off one offs to listen to interviews with people. So, um, now I'm trying to think about shoot what they've listened to. Well, they've listened to UA's podcast. Um, study religion, right? Yes. Yes. The, um, I think it's just called study religion podcast. Yeah. Um, I have had them listen to, um, I can't remember. It's called myth makers. What the, there's one about myth, uh-huh. um, and the lore podcast, mm-hmm. some things like that. Um, what are some of the other ones? I should have made a note before we had this conversation. Um, but we've covered a few of those. Um, I've had them listen to some stuff that, um, uh, Kelly Baker has done. And, um, I know you just interviewed her recently. Um, yeah, a number of people we sort of try to pick up on and Twitter again is great for this because there are all kinds of things that I've never listened to that I wouldn't know about. Oh, I had also listened to the lonely palette, which is an art podcast. Um, and used it as a way to talk about, we were talking about Georgia O'Keeffe um, and, you know, uh, gender and the way it's conceived. And so things of that sort, um, so they listened to that. Nice. Well, another one I'm super into right now, I'm going to do a, a few of them, I'm into Bradley Onishi's podcast. Oh, yes, Straight White American Jesus. So good. And I'm also into um, uh, Keeping It 101 with Elise Morgenstein first and Megan Goodwin. Like those are just wonderful as well. So I love those. But yeah, so Emily Cruz, um, I'm absolutely <laughs> delighted to have you on Classical Ideas. I'm so glad that we were finally able to make this happen and get our, our universes to connect on this uh, <laughs> rainy Sunday afternoon in, well, it, it's rainy for me. It's probably not rainy for you, is it? It's very sunny in Tuscaloosa today. <laughs> nice. Well, it's rainy in Buffalo and it's sunny in Tuscaloosa. So on that note, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a real pleasure. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Classical Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classical ideas podcast. Thanks so much for listening.